Let's start out with a little prayer. Let's remember we're in the holy presence of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, we thank you and praise you during these days of Christmas. And in these days of Christmas, we gather tonight to give honor to your holy apostle, Paul. We come to remember his life. We come to reflect on what he gave to the church, this man who continues 2,000 years later to, to teach us and to challenge us and to call us to a greater relationship with you. So Lord, bless us tonight, pour out your spirit upon us and help us to be open to what you want to teach us tonight. And let's ask Our Lady to be with us as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Paul, pray for us. Again, good evening. I didn't know if it would be myself and uh, Dr. Bergwald, so it's good to see so many of you coming out in the, so soon after uh, Christmas and New Year. Um, we're here tonight to reflect on the great apostle and whether or not I uh, specifically and exactly follow through with the title and what I was told you can uh, judge. But we're going to reflect in a lot of ways on Paul the man and his theology and why we should care about Paul and why the Holy Father should call a year special to him. Just a couple words in a personal sense, you need to know that I am not speaking to you tonight as an expert on St. Paul. I am not a, a scholar of St. Paul in any formal way. So there might very well be questions you could ask me that would stump me. I don't claim that, so I want you to know that. I am a believer and a Christian and obviously a pastor in your midst that, um, as all of us, we've been touched by St. Paul. Very important, as we're going to see in the life of the church. And so as we're in this year, I wanted to take this opportunity for myself and the way that I preach and have a chance to, to communicate in my parishes to learn more about St. Paul and reflect on him more deeply. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to, to talk on this tonight. I also have had the chance in, on a personal level in my life, um, earlier in my life I, I lived in the, in the Middle East in Turkey. I'm a military chaplain so I was uh, in the parts of the, the world where St. Paul lived and preached. Um, I did my seminary studies in Rome, so I've prayed at, the, at the, the spot where Paul spent his last moments and died and was buried. So even on that level, for me, um, reflecting and praying, it, it's a very powerful thing for me to say, who is this man? Now, I don't know if anybody of the other talk speakers ever do this, but I want to start off just with a quick little quiz, because I want to just see how much we know about St. Paul here and, and just do some basic um, Pauline trivia to get a sense of what you may or may not know. So this is not too formal. We're not in class here. So if you have an answer to this, uh, uh, do just holler out. Um, we know that uh, Paul was a name he received later in life. What was St. Paul's Jewish name? Anyone? Saul. Very good. By the way, who is that historic namesake that he's named after? Who is the great 
uh, person he would have been named after in Jewish history? King Saul, the first king. Good, okay. What was the city where Paul was born? Tarsus, okay, today in, in Turkey. Good, all right, so I see we have a high level here of knowledge. Um, what was Paul's trade? What did Paul do? Tent maker, in a more general sense, too, um, working with his hands with, with canvas, it says. You know, the word, let's see, I had to look up, skenopius kind of means one that works in, in a variety of ways with a canvas. Yep. Um, what Jewish party did Paul identify himself with before his conversion? The Pharisees, okay. And um, last one, how many letters did St. Paul write? Ooh, stumped you on that one. No, no. Okay. Going, there's actually, there, this is, could be a trick question in one sense. I mean, 13 is probably, if we kind of take all of the letters that he is uh, historically attributed to, but he might not have written all 13, but we're going to say 13. Okay, very good. Thank you. That just gives me a little insight to see how we're doing. So you guys are a very educated group. I want to start out then with the reality that we're in this year of St. Paul. At the first Vespers in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI told the church that we are going to take an occasion to celebrate, as Dr. Bergwald said, to celebrate the 2000th year of the birth of St. Paul. We don't know exactly when he was born. Scholars say sometime between 7 and 10 AD, so the Holy Father kind of split the difference and chose this year. Um, this past year, then, the Pauline year, was opened in the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. We'll talk a little bit more on that church. And it was a very auspicious group there, of course, including a representation from the Orthodox Church um, to, to gather and to open this event. I want to put this, also, this event also in the context of what Pope John Paul II had been doing. If you remember that for the last 10 years, we have been preparing with John Paul for the, for the great Jubilee of 2000. The Holy Father actually wrote two letters in preparation for the, uh, the bimillennium of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so I think what we're doing this year is within that broad context. Let me just read a couple lines from what John Paul wrote in the letter on the, in, in the Holy Year that kind of puts forth the energy of these years of anniversaries that we are celebrating. John Paul writes, let us go forth in hope. A new millennium is opening before the church like a vast ocean upon which we shall venture, relying on the help of Christ. The Son of God, who became incarnate 2,000 years ago out of love for humanity, is at work today. We need discerning eyes to see this, and above all, a generous heart to become instruments of his work. Did we not celebrate the Jubilee year in order to refresh our contact with the living source of our hope? Now the Christ whom we have contemplated and loved bids us to set out once more on our journey. Go, therefore, and bid us to set out to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
that spirit that our Holy Father of Light writes about, I think, is really the spirit of Paul. And as we celebrate this year of St. Paul, we are invited by the Holy Father to get back in contact with the deep roots of our faith, the deep roots of the gospel, the deep roots of evangelization and ecumenism and all these important realities of the church that we're going to reflect on. Benedict says something very interesting. He says, Paul wants to speak to us today. Let's not ask ourselves, who was Paul? Like he was a historic figure, like you would study George Washington or other historic figures. Let us ask ourselves, who is Paul? Paul wants to speak to the church today. Now, in this first part, again, as I'm laying out why Paul is important, why we should care, I want to do a little bit of just presenting an image of who this man was. This human who was very talented, many gifts, and many flaws as well. And even to give you a sense, too, of the times in which he lived, because we know many facts about Paul. We know that he was a great missionary. We know that he wrote letters. But we might not realize at what great expense, personally, this man, what he went through. Um, again, let me just share a little bit from um, uh, Father Brown, who is kind of commenting on, on Paul, who's talking about all the trials that he went through to preach the gospel. To appreciate the reality of the description that modern readers may need some background, it is often affirmed that the famous Roman road system made it easy to dash around the Roman world. And undoubtedly, Paul took advantage of such roads when he could. But in many regions, he would not have had such a luxury. Paul was an itinerant artisan who would have had to struggle to get money for food. A wheeled vehicle would have been beyond his means. Horseback travel was difficult, for horses were not used for long distances, and skill was needed for riding given the absence of saddles and stirrups that we know. Probably Paul would not have even been able or willing to spend money for a donkey to carry his baggage, for soldiers were prone to requisition these animals from travelers. And we have to picture Paul trudging along the roads, carrying his limited possessions in a sack, at the maximum of 20 miles a day. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize when we think about Paul and his missionary journeys that we're going to reflect upon, this was someone who, who with great effort, great trial, went forward to preach the gospel in ways that we cannot understand in our age of cars and planes and so many modern conveniences. Again, as part of this introductory part, we have to also understand that Paul, next to Jesus Christ, was certainly the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. We're going to be reflecting on this, but no one wrote so much, 
No one shared so much of their own life and their own personal experience. No one in the early church so carefully put together the meaning of this Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and that has forever shaped and changed the church. Let's look a little bit then at his life and theology, just a few of the main uh, dates and points to kind of then help us to transition into what St. Paul's message and what he has left us in his writings. We know, as we're saying tonight, that he was born somewhere around 5 to 10 in the, in the Roman city of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is what is today Turkey and Asia Minor, one of the, the Roman provinces. It was kind of not really in the center of things, but it was a, a city of some substance. Very important, uh, that's going to affect later on. We know that Paul, as a member, as being born in Tarsus, was a Roman citizen. That's going to affect uh, his later life, including how he dies. So remember that fact. Um, we know that somewhere around 36, he had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Whether or not there was a horse involved, we don't know. Paintings kind of show that, but the scriptures do not say anything about a horse. You can take that or leave that. After Paul's conversion, he went through a time of trying to, to understand his place in the church, and he talks about how he went off into to Arabia, and eventually he goes to Jerusalem to meet the apostles. We know that Paul makes his headquarters in Antioch, which is again in the southern tip of Turkey, and, it, and that, by the way, Antioch is where they were first called Christians be after Jerusalem, um, certainly one of the most important centers of, of Christianity uh, in the ancient world. Now we talk about three missionary journeys of Paul. Again, that's kind of a nice modern uh, shorthand. You know, if you're asking Paul, well, Paul, what missionary journey are you on? Are you on one, two, or three? He might not really have known what you're talking about. We're not sure on that. But it's a handy way for us to talk about three main trips that he, he took to spread the faith. The first one where he was uh, going into Cyprus and into Asia Minor. After that, he comes back to Antioch, and one of the great experiences that Acts of the Apostles talks a, a lot about is uh, the meeting in Jerusalem, sometimes called the, the, the Council of Jerusalem. The early church debated um, for the Gentiles and for the Jews, was circumcision necessary? We, as modern people, we don't necessarily understand the importance of this issue. But this was a crucial issue that was going to determine whether Christianity, as, um, as Paul and Peter each had their vision of it, was it going to be a little Jewish sect? Or was it going to be um, a gospel, a message, a movement that went out to all the world, whether or not one was Jewish? And the apostles came to the conclusion, quite controversial, that circumcision, following of the Torah, the law, was not absolutely necessary to be part of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's position. Paul's second missionary journey takes him further on. He goes again through Asia Minor and into Greece, 
and then back to Jerusalem and then Antioch. And then finally, his third one, again, takes him into Galatia, which is in um, uh, Asia Minor and Turkey, and then to Ephesus, three-year stay there. Finally, we know that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, imprisoned two years, and eventually, after a long sea journey, makes his way to Rome. Somewhere between 61 and 63, he is martyred for the faith, even though um, that event is not chronicled in the scriptures. A word about um, our sources for Paul, because how do we know about Paul? Where do we get our information? Now, obviously, the first place we get it is from Paul's own writings. We're going to know a lot, mostly about Paul, from what he tells us about himself, his journeys, what's important in his theology. So that, of course, is the most important place to start. But then there's also the Acts of the Apostles, as we know, the second part of Luke's writings. Um, remember, Luke, a very masterful, skillful writer, writes a two-book um, summary of the faith. The first one, of course, is the Gospel that tells about Jesus Christ until his ascension, Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, Acts of the Apostles, how the faith goes out to all the world. And of course, Paul is the, the major hero of the Acts of the Apostles. But one of the problems there, folks, is this. Not everything in the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's writings click in a very neat way. This is more for scholars, so I'm kind of just giving you a little um, insight for those who really want to delve in more, but how do we know, for example, um, which facts are correct? And do we trust this, uh, the Acts? Do we trust Paul? Um, there are three main approaches to, to this. Someone is just say, yeah, trust everything in Acts. Some say, oh, throw it out, axes, you know, it's just all, you know, uh, made up for a, a theological point. And then there's a little more reasonable where, first of all, you always go by what Paul says, but the Acts has a lot to teach us as well. So it's just interesting for those who really study this. It's not just on the surface. It's, it's, a, it's a bit complicated, um, and that's okay. Um, as we get now into Paul's writings, we're going to kind of really delve into those. Again, just to present to you um, one of the, the controversies that kind of keeps scholars up at night. People of faith, this is not something that we necessarily have to delve in so much unless you're kind of doing some more studies. But there are 13 letters that are traditionally ascribed to Paul. But scholars say, hmm, not all of these necessarily look like they were written by Paul. Perhaps some of them, like for example, Colossians, maybe was written either by Paul, you know, either later in life, or maybe it was by a disciple. And why do scholars get in these things? Well, some of the vocabulary is different. Some of the themes, like in Colossians, that talks about the church in a very much more structured way that Paul doesn't talk about earlier on. Now, that doesn't mean Paul didn't write it, but the point is, even in the letters of St. Paul, we already see growth and development, and um, the earliest letters, 1 the um, Thessalon um, Thessalonians versus Colossians, 
they're very different pieces of literature. Again, we're talking over a period of some 30 years. Again, just presenting to you a little of this, um, this puzzle, if you will, into um, the writings of Paul. As people of faith, this has nothing to do whether Colossians is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is scripture. It's all scripture. The church has all put it into the canon, but um, sometimes it's not all as, as completely neat as, you know, this was all written by, by Paul. And we don't necessarily even know, like, who all these writers were. Sometimes they were given, you know, this was written by Luke or by Peter or by John. Was it the John from who was the beloved disciple? And on and on. We don't know completely. That doesn't affect our faith. I want to take you now, again, in a little overview of this incredible man, Paul's writings. Not in, an, in a complete way at all, but just to at least show you why Paul is considered to be so important in the life of the church. Remember that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling the story the theology of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, of course. And they're not done in any sort of systematic way of looking at necessarily, well, what does the cross mean? What does the resurrection have to do with the believers? In other words, it's all there, but it takes someone like St. Paul to unpack it, to develop the vocabulary, to to explain under the guidance of the Holy Spirit what this all means. The Gospels don't talk about the word justification. We're going to talk about that in a moment. The Gospels don't talk about some of the, a lot of these terms. But Paul, in some very deep and real ways, brings together and reflects on what Jesus did and who he was for the early church. Let me start out with, what I'm going to do is just kind of episodic, kind of go through uh, the, the themes, if you will, of Paul's writings and make reference to, to some verses, and again, just to highlight what Paul has left us. We have to start out with the fact of how did Paul understand himself? After his conversion, how did Paul understand his role, his mission in the church? In Romans 1.1, Paul says very specifically and very beautifully, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. The Greek word for servant, doulos, a very strong word. If you are a doulos, you're a slave. If I'm a doulos to you, that means I'm your slave. It, it, it has a very, very strong um, uh, connotation. So Paul understands himself in a relationship to Christ like that, and he calls himself, too, an apostle. Now, in some ways, we should be a little surprised by that. Remember, the apostles, the twelve, 
And in each, each gospel writer has a little different take on some of this vocabulary. Not every gospel and writer uses all these vocabulary words in the exact same way. You have to know that. But the apostles generally were the twelve chosen by Jesus Christ during his earthly life who lived with him, who saw his works, who traveled with him up to Jerusalem who were witnesses to the resurrection and then were sent out. Now, Paul did not know the historic Jesus Christ. He was not part of the Twelve. And yet, Paul, we're going to get more into this, he had a very personal understanding of who Jesus Christ was for him. This was not just a beautiful idea. This wasn't just a beautiful person he wrote, read about in a book or heard about from others. He knew this Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Galatians 2.20 again, reflecting this personal nature of Paul's faith, says this, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A lot of passages we could look at where Paul is talking about what Jesus Christ did for the world and for the church. But here, again, Paul is giving us a little insight into how he understood that Jesus Christ was for him. His faith was not a theory or an opinion about God and the world. His faith is the impact of God's love in his heart. We know that Paul, if you know anything, and if you read his, 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 his writings carefully, he was a very quarrelsome man. He was a pugnacious man. He was a strong-willed man. Um, when he, for example, took the Galatians to task, he called them some very strong words, by the way, it came out of a very personal understanding of, of trying to call them to Christ. Um, <clears throat> continuing on then, because again, this is going to be the heart. Paul wants to share what he has experienced and share that with those that he goes out to in his missionary work. Now, Paul is going to write a lot about um, anthropology, again, looking at all the various themes. And anthropology, remember, is how we understand what the human person is. And so, before we can get to Jesus Christ, Paul is going to reflect with us on, well, who is the human being in the world? And why do we need God? And what does God do for us? So Paul is going to, for example, talk about the reality of sin and the flesh and death and the law and these realities that the human person experiences. Let me just read for you Romans 7.19 that gives a sense of 
Paul's own struggle with this idea where the human person, even though the person that wants to do good and be a good person and find God, we find ourselves wrapped up in so many ways where we're not necessarily able to do it well. So seven, uh, Romans 7.19 says this, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So then I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. Who will deliver me from this mortal body? It's a very strong ending statement. It's a cry. Who will deliver me? I want to do good, and yet I choose stuff that is not good for me. I want to love my neighbor, and yet I find in my heart that I'm sometimes stingy and selfish and angry. Don't we all find that? Paul reflects on this reality of sin that has come into the world through the first Adam. Even those of us who want to be good, we have to deal with this reality of sin. And for the Jews, you know, he talks about the law. The law is there, we're supposed to follow the law, the Torah, the given to, to the Jewish people, and yet, the law does not make the people just. It only shows them you're failing here and you're not keeping that commandment. And this is how Paul reflects on that reality. Very important word for, for Paul in this sense too is the flesh. Living in the flesh. Now does it mean that our bodies, our world is bad? But the flesh, sarks in Greek, is at opposition to the spirit. We're going to reflect on that in a moment. But to live in the flesh means to live according to the logic of sin. Our bodies are fine, but when we use our bodies to justify adultery and greed and selfishness and anger, we're living according to Sark's flesh. This is anthropology. This is the human being. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're an American, you know, again, putting a little modern spin on things. The human condition first without reference to Christ. But thankfully that's not the whole story, is it, folks? Paul is mostly interested then in saying that is not the whole story. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, has come into the world and has changed everything. Now the mystery of salvation has entered the world, and so everything is new. Now we're dealing with this Jesus Christ and his divinity, the Son become man and his death and his resurrection. Now one thing you might notice about Paul, just to kind of put... Uh, um, an observation in here. You notice that Paul does not talk a lot about the earthly ministry of Jesus. He's not as concerned about the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. Paul gets to the very heart of the mission of Jesus Christ, his salvific death and resurrection and what this means to us. Let me read one of the most beautiful uh, prayers. Now, most likely Paul did not write this himself. 
This is from Second uh, Philippians, and it's what's called the Philippians Canticles. Those of us who pray the, the liturgy of the hours every Saturday or every Sunday uh, evening, we pray this song prayer that Paul probably um, copied from what was being sung in the churches. And this is how he understood Jesus Christ. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and he found himself in human appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. Because of this, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That encapsulizes, folks, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, of the substance of the Father, using later language, he humbled himself. Kenosis. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? Um, he's humbled even unto death, but the Father raises him up, and every knee bows and calls him Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the mystery that changes the human condition, the anthropology we talked about. And Paul writes so much and beautifully on that. I don't even want to try and, um, even in a superficial way, pretend to do justice to that. But everything changes with Jesus Christ. One interesting just kind of point in terms of, again, some of the controversies. You know, there are those, especially of a liberal Christian bent over the last few hundred years, that want to say that, well, Jesus Christ was a very good teacher, he was a reformist, maybe a political reformist, but nothing more. And the church, and Paul especially, Paul came along and made Jesus into some God kind of person, gave all this language that made him divine, and on and on. Of course, those arguments are not very uh, strong in terms of even just the, the Bible evidence. There are those who want to just say, well, Paul created this divine Jesus. For us, though, Paul experienced in his life and in the life of the church this Jesus. Again, continuing on in the themes of Paul's writing. Of course, Paul is going to go into how man receives the salvation. He's going to talk, and I'm going to go a little quicker through some of these because, again, Try and do justice to Paul is not possible in a short talk. But man, for example, man and woman is justified, a very important word, declared just by the saving death and resurrection of Christ. It is not through anything that the human person does that wins him God's favor. All is grace, as, as Augustine says, and Augustine was a very strong reader of St. Paul. It is through faith that the human person enters into this, through baptism, that we are made righteous and justified. By the way, that is, of course, going to be one of the major themes in Paul's writings, and especially to the Galatians and to the Romans. Um, much to reflect on there. 
So after then the human person has received salvation though, does this mean that he or she has nothing to do? I'm saved, I'm justified, I've gotten heaven. Well, this of course is one of the differences between Catholics and Lutherans, I mean, historically speaking at least, and, and, the, and the Protestant churches. What is a Christian's responsibility once they are baptized and they have in faith accepted this relationship with Christ? This is where the whole reality of morality, Christian morality, which basically means how do we act? How do we live life in Jesus Christ? The ascetical struggle, what's asceticism? That's where we learn to, to live life in balance, growing in the virtues, rejecting the vices, becoming people who live faith, hope, and charity, living lives of temperance, justice, fortitude. This means learning to love not the emotion of love. Love on an emotional level changes. We got good days. We got days where people tick us off and it's hard to love. Love is the choice. Living in Christ, regardless of the emotions. Love and the moral life is living in the power of the Spirit given to us in baptism. This is this whole beautiful struggle. I have to read one of my favorite passages, again, that shows this area of Galatians 5.19. Of course, you've heard this before, but again, this comes back to this whole idea between the flesh and the spirit. <clears throat> Paul, first of all, goes through um, the works of the flesh. Let me skip to where it talks about, but if, you live, if, if we live in the Spirit, <clears throat> in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. For the Christian who has been justified and lives in faith, we are called to practice and to bear fruit regularly in our daily lives. Finally then, continuing, the human person has been justified and called to live morality, the Christian life in Christ. And then Paul reflects a lot on the church. The Greek and the, the, the Latin word ecclesia, those who are called together. That's what the word means, ecclesia. Those who have been called by God together. In other words, the church, ecclesia, is not a club like the Kiwanis Club, that you join, you leave, when you don't like it, you move on. Church is a creation by God. Church, as Paul says, is the body of Christ. Church is about koinonia, which means communion. The union we have with God and the union we have with each other that is created not just when good feelings and goodwill and when you like the person that you're sitting next to in the pew. Maybe the person you like, you're sitting next to in the pew or at the table is not your favorite person, and yet we love them and we are in union with them because we are in union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. 
In the short time I have left, then I want to finally turn to a last theme. We've looked basically in terms of where I've tried in some small ways to, to paint a portrait of Paul and why he's important. I've tried to at least look at some of the, the main themes of his writing and his life. And now we finally come back to the question of if Paul is all that we're saying, how are we invited by the church to celebrate him this year? How are we called to celebrate a spiritual Pauline year that will help us to grow in our faith? Now, Pope Benedict the 16th, of course, gives us some food for thought and some ideas. This is how the Holy Father would like us to commemorate this year. First of all, he says, come to Rome, to liturgical, cultural, ec uh, ecumenical events at St. Paul's Basilica. I'm happy to lead a pilgrimage if anyone wants to sign up with me. Wouldn't that be a great way? Second, he says, um, there should be uh, pilgrimages. We'll say more on that. Third, there should be the study of Paul's letters, an obvious but a very important one. And then, of course, it's not just for Rome at the, the great basilicas there, but every local church should be doing these, uh, these um, ecumenical and cultural and liturgical events. And finally, very important, the Holy Father emphasizes ecumenism, how Christians can come together around the example of St. Paul and uh, pray together, mission together, strengthen the church together. <clears throat> Let me just kind of again reflect on, I hope that all of us are going to take time to pray in a special way this year around St. Paul. First of all, remember what are his main, the main feast days? Of course, we got one coming up very soon, January 25th, the conversion of St. Paul. Um, it's going to fall on a Sunday this year. Um, we're given the option of, um, of uh, jettisoning the, the, the third, uh, let's see, I think it's the third ordinary Sunday for that feast, which in my church and tea we're going to do because I want to emphasize St. Paul. And then, of course, in June 29th, that will bring to a conclusion um, the whole year. Let me say a word about um, pilgrimages. Now, I know Bishop Swain, even our own diocese, has encouraged for those who, who don't want to go all the way to Rome. I'm not going to be able to do that either. But the idea still of pilgrimage going to places associated either by name with St. Paul or going to places where we one can pray, offer mass, do works of charity. So for example, the cathedral, any of the chur few churches in our diocese that have the name of St. Paul. I know, let's see, Pierre has Peter and Paul. Um, I think, where else? White? Okay, White. I know Marty Mission. Armor. Dimmock, okay, I don't want to forget any of our diocese, Iroquois. These are all places called by the bishop to be places of pilgrimage. Um, not to put them on the spot, but uh, Deacon Pardue and I, we are going to be very soon in the process of putting together a pilgrimage for our young people and for any of our families going out to Marty. Um, we have a few ideas, we're still in the works, but we're going to go out, obviously have a chance to celebrate Mass with our young people, 
It's also going to be a time where we will have collected clothes for, for the mission. In other words, prayer, charity, justice, all these um, aspects of our faith will come together. And every church, every one of us, we can do our own spin on that. But the whole idea, of course, is to pray. Ecumenism, very important. That involves prayer, of course. That involves also the humility as Catholics to gather with our brothers and sisters in the faith. St. Paul, as a missionary, as, our, as the great teacher, teacher of the Gentiles, he is not, does not belong to the Catholic Church. He does not belong to the Protestant Church. Of course, he was long before these divisions. Historically, there were times where our churches used the, the theology in, in different ways that have separated us. And thankfully, we have moved in many ways beyond that. We live in a time and a culture, whether it be around... How do we keep our country Christian? How do we protect life? How do we live our American culture in a way that is open and respectful of religion? And obviously, Catholics, we need to do this in a strong way, but we need our good co-workers in all the Christian churches. May I suggest, as the Holy Father has, that Paul has much to teach us there. Finally, let me just say a word, just a passing word, really. Uh, for those who have interest, you can kind of look at these. But again, if you do have a chance to go to Turkey, if you go to Greece, to go to Rome, it's very important that we as American Catholics, sometimes, you know, we, we, we're very insular here. We stand on the back of our ancestors, all the way back to Paul. And I encourage you to realize, if we go to Turkey, for example, to the city of Ephesus, that is where Paul was imprisoned for two years. Profound uh, place of prayer. You can go to Greece, to Athens, to the Acropolis, to the Areopagus, where Paul stood. And if you remember the story from the Acts, there's all these altars. And um, Paul finds one that says, to an unknown God. And Paul preaches and says, without even knowing, they're invoking and praying to the Father of Jesus Christ. And he preaches a profound homily there. And finally, to go to Rome, to the beautiful Basilica of St. Paul outside the the walls, a historic place that goes back to the first church that was put up in this ancient cemetery where Paul was, was buried. A couple of the interesting traditions. Paul was, was um, how did Paul die? He was beheaded, right? Tradition says, and this is just one of these pious traditions, they uh, beheaded him and his head bounced three times. And it's uh, the little place in Italian is called Tre Fontane, three fountains. Um, his head bounced and, uh, and, a, and a fountain of water came up uh, that's still there today. 
that's not gospel truth. You don't have to believe that. But again, the stories around that. But we know that Paul was buried there. His place was remembered. The great Constantine put up a church over that. Another basilica was put up eventually over that. Um, and then um, the present church that stands there was only put up in 1823 because the ancient church burnt to the ground um, in, uh, after a tragic fire. All that's just kind of uh, details. The point is, brothers and sisters, we go to honor the man. More importantly, we read his readings, his writings. We strive to know Jesus Christ in a personal way who leads us to the Father. Thank you, and um, I will take, can't promise to be able to answer any questions, but um, we'll see what thoughts you might have. We, that, uh, Peter and Paul, were they martyred in the same year? Good question, Father Paul. Um, first of all, we really don't know. Tradition says, I didn't have a chance, I, I, I kind of went a little quickly through some stuff. Remember that in the Roman church, Peter and Paul are very closely connected together. Their feast day is celebrated together. On the icons, they're always shown together. Now, we know that they were probably, you know, we, we know that they're both martyred in Rome. We know they're martyred around the same time. Whether or not it was the same year, that's, uh, uh, there's no exact um, uh, information on that. There's different accounts. One thing I said before, remember, why was Paul beheaded and Peter was crucified? Does anybody know that answer? I'm just curious. Paul was a Roman citizen, and so it was a much more merciful death, the logic goes, to be beheaded. And I guess if you have to compare it to crucifixion, I'm sure that probably was true, rather than to be crucified. Um, and so Paul received that privilege to be beheaded, while Peter was just a, a provincial, so he, he could be crucified for the, for the comic relief of the, of the masses. We're all ready to celebrate a holy um, year of St. Paul. Let me also, let me just read through a list. Bishop Saltorelli, who's a bishop in Delaware, he put together 10 ways to celebrate the year of St. Paul. And some of these we've mentioned, but let me just kind of uh, read these through as a list. Number one, pray to the Holy Spirit about your unique and intimate road to Damascus conversion that the Spirit is calling you to. In other words, just like Paul, God called him to a conversion on that road. How is the Lord calling you and me in this year to, to let go of something, to convert? Number two, to live Galatians um, 2.20. Remember, that's the... the, the, the um, Notation I read where, where Paul says he understands Jesus who lived and who died for me. That personal relationship. Not just some large theological Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus died for me with my own sins. 
That deserves a lot of prayer and reflection. Number three, read and pray the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of St. Paul and use good biblical commentaries. In other words, don't just read them quickly, superficially to get through them, but study them. Number four, Lexio Divina. We all know what that is. That is, the Benedictines especially are very adept at this. When we read through the Bible, we take time very slowly. In fact, you might take a passage of St. Paul's letters and you read one or two or three verses and you pray over it and you read it over again and you ask the Holy Spirit what you're supposed to get out of that. You're not trying to just, oh, I want to read through this whole chapter. That's Lexio Divina. Number five, oh, I like this one. Study the church's teaching on Revelation and biblical interpretations in the documents of Vatican II. Remember, folks, the way that Catholics and Protestants, and I'm using Protestants in a very general way, which isn't really very fair, but we don't read the Bibles all exactly in the same ways. Do you know how to read the Bible as a Catholic? Um, do you know how the church invites Catholics to pray and read the Bible? Number six, study and pray through Paul's teachings on the power of the cross. Paul has much to say on the cross. Number seven, develop a Pauline reverence for the Eucharist and the body of Christ. Um, Paul, of course, recounts the oldest um, institution narrative of the Eucharist, older than the Gospels. Uh, number eight, a pilgrimage. We talked about that. Number nine, seek Paul's intercession to be a more vibrant missionary in the world. And then ten, study and pray the classical paintings of St. Paul. There's beautiful art, and sometimes even through the medium of art, we can, God's Spirit can, can move us to understand his word more deeply. <clears throat> wow. They're just dazed into silence there. Okay. Well, I thank you for letting me just kind of uh, break open a little bit with you and share a little bit on Paul with you, and I wish to you a very holy Pauline year and that uh, he may work powerfully in your lives these coming months. God bless you.